Let us pray. Father, that we may be like Jesus. So now we ask as we come to your word that you would work by your spirit to mold us and shape us into his image for the glory of your name. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. It's good to be back and good to see you all. I would invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to the second chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. Today is the second Sunday of Christmas, and tomorrow is Epiphany, and we are kind of, with the service today, kind of straddling the line between the two, I think, a little bit. Um, But Christmas does have 12 days on the church calendar. It is not just December 25th. And then tomorrow, um, and we may do an Epiphany service next year on Epiphany. We'll see. Um, But Epiphany marks um, that full revelation of Jesus as God in the flesh made manifest, even as we just sang. And so in our time together this morning, in light of that, I want to look at our gospel reading the visit of the Magi, as it's recorded in St. Matthew's Gospel. And in doing so, I really have three purposes. One, I want to separate for us myth from the biblical record. Second, I want to understand more about who the Magi were and their purpose in coming to Bethlehem. And then I also want for us to understand in an accurate biblical sense what their visit symbolized and what it means for each of us today. So let's start with a little bit of background. There are a number of popular myths or assumptions about the Magi that have kind of gotten inculcated into our thinking in the church. The first one is this, that there were three Magi or three wise men. The fact is it never says that in scripture. Where do we get the idea of three from? Anybody know? Yes, the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's also been reinforced through the years by singing the first Noel, where the final verse says, then entered in those wise men three. Is the way the, the final verse of the first Noel begins. We really don't know how many magi there were, but they probably traveled with a large entourage. Um, travel in that day was dangerous. They were traveling from afar with, with very expensive gifts through areas where the roads and the countryside was just polluted with thieves and robbers. So even for security purposes, they were probably traveling as a very large group. The second thing we often hear is that they are referred to as kings. Scripture never says that, but we will sing that even this morning in the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, which is where that idea again gets reinforced. The third myth about the Magi is this. They did not visit Jesus while he was in the stable. They did not arrive immediately after Jesus' birth. They probably arrived several months later, but it could have been as much as two years later. And they came to the house in Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph were staying. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 explicitly says that. So what do we know about the Magi? Who were they? Well, we do know that the Magi were pagans and they were Gentiles. 
They were definitely astrologers who believed that by observing heavenly bodies and their movements, as well as events such as comets and meteorites, that they could predict future events. They were, in the pagan Gentile world in which they lived, really part of the spiritual elite. They were most likely either from Persia, what we know today is Iran, or they were from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, but somewhere in that region of the Middle East. And the Persians especially were known for their divination and astrology, and the pagan Greeks and Romans who lived further west than them looked to them with a high level of esteem in these matters. And the fact is, tragically, at some time, sometimes Jews, God's people, even gave credence to divination and astrology, even though God's word clearly forbids God's people from involvement in these things, even at a level of curiosity. And we should remember that those Old Testament commands about divination and astrology are not just for Old Testament Israel. They apply to us as well. God's people are to have nothing to do with those kinds of dark, satanic activities. Deuteronomy 18 and 2 Kings 23 both explicitly forbid God's people being involved with those types of things. I like to think of this whole set of events that unfolds in Matthew chapter 2 as kind of a divine drama. Not an act, but a real historical event with significance both then and significance for you and me today. And I like to think about who the different players in this divine drama are. Obviously, the most significant players are Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, if you will. But what about the others? Well, we have the Magi. We first read about them in Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. And we've already talked about them some. And although they were pagans, they were on a mission. Everything we see in Scripture tells us that they were sincerely seeking, even though their understanding was limited and probably rather distorted. I think that's an important point to note, though, that sometimes, and we'll come back to this a little bit later, but sometimes when people are beginning to be drawn to God, they may be sincere, but their perspectives may be distorted, their understanding is limited, and yet God at times still works in that to bring them to a full revelation of himself. So the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. So try to picture the scene with me. They stopped in Jerusalem probably out of a sense of protocol. And while they were there, received more specific information, which they pieced together with the phenomenon of the star to know that they needed to go to Bethlehem. But their arrival probably caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. I mean, picture it with me. You've got this entourage, a large entourage, coming into Jerusalem from a foreign land with camels and different types of fabrics and and things that were foreign to that part of the Middle East in Jerusalem. And it was a lot of people. And they came carrying great wealth. And it would have caused quite a stir. However many magi there actually were, they would have had many people accompanying them. And again, the entire caravan would have had an exotic flair. And then to add to that, they were looking for a king, a newborn king. It was customary at that time in the ancient Near East for leaders in other regions to send official representatives and recognize and congratulate new leaders. And so in their limited information, that's really what these magi were seeking to do. The next player we have is in verse 3, where we read about King Herod. 
Herod was paranoid, clearly demonized, perhaps insane, and we know that Herod was absolutely ruthless. Herod was only part Jewish, so faithful Jews despised him because he was not a legitimate ruler. He was propped up by the Roman authorities who used him to their advantage, and Herod also used the Romans to his advantage, and Herod had been, over the years, particularly adept at arranging marriages in his family to solidify his power base and his influence with the Romans. The events that we read about in Matthew 2 took place in the last year or two of Herod's life. Now again, Herod, Herod was highly unpopular with the people. He was cruel. He was known for his ex excessive taxation. And he was just, just a flat out nasty guy. To give you an example of just how ruthless and nasty Herod was, when he realized his death was approaching, the Jewish historian Josephus records that he called, Herod called for all the notable Jews in the region to come to Jerusalem. And upon their arrival, he had ordered his sister and brother-in-law to arrest and imprison them, them and hold them all in the Hippodrome in Jerusalem. He, on top of that, he gave orders that immediately upon his death, all of these leaders were to be executed. And what was the reason? Because Herod wanted to ensure that at his death, it would be marked by a national mourning rather than a time of celebration and festivities. Fortunately, history also records that his sister did not follow his orders after he died. But obviously, a ruler like Herod was going to deal ruthlessly with anyone, even an infant who he thought had the slightest chance of his, of his reign diminishing Herod's power. Then we also have, in verses 4 through 6, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And this was not a broad representative group of the religious leaders. This was a small, generally wealthy group of leaders, primarily from the sect of the Sadducees. That's where the group, the group that priests came from. And this small group in Jerusalem, Herod held great influence over them. He had long ago forcibly removed any of his opponents from among them. And Herod went to them and he consulted them regarding what Scripture said about where this king would be born. So there you have the key players in the drama. And the Magi, innocently and sincerely seeking, kind of strode into this dysfunctional mess in Jerusalem, obvious, or rather oblivious to the furor that their honest searching would cause. So what is so significant about the Magi visiting the infant Jesus, and how does that impact our lives? Well, there are three things I want to look at this morning regarding their visit and their actions, which I believe are significant for you and me today. First of all, we have the significance of their worship. The purpose of the Magi in seeking out the newborn King Jesus Christ was to worship him. In verse 2 of Matthew 2, they say to Herod, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Matthew verse 2 verse 11 continues, when they found the house where Jesus was, they fell down and they worshipped him. They fell down. And here we have this picture of these wealthy men of influence from the east lying prostrate before the baby Jesus. I mean, think about that in a little podunk town like Bethlehem. 
Jews understood the homage paid to Jesus as the standard honor given to kings or royalty. But beyond that, especially for these pagans from Persia or Babylon, to fall on one's face was only proper in the worship of God. So for these Persians or Babylonians to lie prostrate carried incredible significance because to them it was a recognition that they were in the presence of deity even if they didn't completely understand everything that was going on. What a picture. Pagan religious leaders and astrologers bowing in homage before the king of kings who came as a little baby born into a poor Jewish household. And what a contrast we have because their response stands in such stark contrast to the indifference and the complacency of the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. Religious leaders who used their biblical knowledge regarding where the Messiah would be born to assist Herod in his wicked scheme and to aid the Magi in their requests. But scripture says nothing about them accompanying the Magi to Bethlehem. And what we see with these religious leaders is they failed to act on the most critical biblical knowledge that they had. And in doing so, they completely missed God's salvation in Jesus Christ. I think that should speak to us in our day and be a warning. Knowledge of God's word, knowledge of the scriptures that stays right here in the head as a collection of academic information is not enough. The truths of scripture must be inculcated into our lives. They must be embraced. And by God's grace, they must be acted upon and lived out. We must respond to the word of God. Mark Twain, that 19th century writer, once encountered a ruthless businessman from Boston during his travels. And this businessman boasted that nobody ever got in his way once he determined to do something. And he said to Mark Twain once, before I die, I mean to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to climb Mount Sinai. And when I'm up there, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top of my voice. Unimpressed, Mark Twain paused and thought for a moment and responded, I've got a better idea. Stay in Boston and keep them. The Magi bowed down before the baby Jesus, God the Son in human flesh and blood. We cannot miss the significance of their act of worship. Second, we have the significance of their gifts in verse 11. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were incredibly valuable things. Remember, Mary and Joseph were a poor young couple from Nazareth. We know they were poor because in Luke's gospel, when we read that they went to present Jesus in the temple, the sacrifice that they offered was two doves, which was the least expensive acceptable sacrifice for that type of an occasion. If they were more wealthy, they would have offered a lamb or a bull or something of that nature, but they couldn't afford that. This was far more wealth than they had ever seen in their lives. Many scholars believe that this, these materials, the gold and the frankincense and myrrh, 
were what funded their flight and time in Egypt because they were of such wealth or, or such value. But these three gifts were also highly symbolic. Gifts were part of the standard greeting in the ancient Near East in royal courts. And these items were also used in the East for religious offerings as well. And these gifts signified loyalty and submission. But the symbolism even goes beyond those things. It was more than that because these gifts also spoke of who Jesus is. And they pointed to what he would do. Gold. Gold represented Jesus as a king, not just an earthly king, but the king of kings and lord of lords, king of heaven and of earth. Then we had frankincense. Frankincense was made of gum resin and it was used as incense in the worship of God. We used it here at the 1030 service on Christmas Eve. Exodus chapter 30 verses 34 through 38 Tell us that the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti and onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each other be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it into very, of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall take, you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever offers any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Leviticus 24 verse 7 specifies that frankincense was to be offered with the bread of the presence. Leviticus chapter 2 and Leviticus chapter 6 specify that frankincense was to be mixed with grain offerings. Frankincense testified to the fact that Jesus is God and that he is to be worshipped. And then finally, we have myrrh, which spoke of and pointed to Jesus' death. The one who would die the sinless sacrifice for the sins of the world. I think there's another possible aspect of what these gifts of the Magi and their visit symbolizes as well. I think through the representation of the Magi, these Gentiles, non-Jews, we see the fact, we read the fact that God in Christ calls people from every nation, every tribe, and every race, offering them all his salvation through Jesus Christ. God calls people from the East like the Magi. He calls people from the West like the Roman centurion we read about in Matthew chapter 8. God calls Jews to salvation through Jesus Christ. He calls the high, the mighty, the influential, like the Magi and Herod and the religious leaders. But he also calls the poor and the outcast and the marginalized, like the shepherds who the angels announced the birth to in the fields. Remember what the angels said as we read on Christmas Eve. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The account of the Magi confronts and challenges any sense of exclusivity regarding who may come to salvation through Jesus Christ. All may come. Background doesn't matter. No matter how pagan someone's background might be, doesn't matter. No matter what you have done, what has been done to you, 
what you have been through, no matter what your life growing up was like, no matter where you hail from, whether it be somewhere else in the United States or from somewhere afar around the world, salvation is available to you through Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't miss the, the significance of the sincerity of the Magi. The Magi were sincerely seeking the child Jesus to pay homage to him. And again, that stands in contrast to Herod, who in saying he also wanted to worship the Christ, was simply manipulating things for his purposes to try to make sure he held on to his worldly power. Their sincerity is especially demonstrated by their returning by a different route after it was revealed, revealed to them in a dream that they were to do so. And when you look at a map of that part of the world and you look at where they needed to travel to, that was no small inconvenience. It was a costly detour. And I think there's a principle we see, principle we see even in that. And it is this. That sincere worship of Jesus can never be self-serving. It must focus upon God and his will and his purposes. And genuine and sincere worship involves obedience and it involves action. God, without condoning astrology or pagan practices, used the heavens. Part of his creation, part of what he had made to reveal himself to non-believing pagans. He used this and he used them to push aside any sense of elitism in the gospel. And the fact is God still reveals himself to people through his creation. We call that in theology general revelation. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Yet the natural creation, the supernatural guidance of the star to the Magi could only take them so far. The revelation of God in nature and creation can only take us and people in our day so far. Ultimately, we've got to span that gap. Ultimately, we've got to look to the scriptures. We've got to look to what the word of God says about Jesus Christ. We've got to look to what the word of God says about submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We've got to understand that salvation, true salvation, redemption, and eternal life are only found through Jesus Christ and him alone. The King of kings, Lord of lords, eternal son of God who came to earth to live a sinless life and die a death that we deserved. So regardless of background for us here today, regardless of background for those who we encounter in the workplace and in our community, regardless of background for people all around the world, high and mighty, poor and lowly, those in the center of power and those have, who have been pushed to the margin so often unjustly, the reality is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross because all come to God the same way through Jesus Christ and only through him. That's what the Magi show us. Scripture doesn't tell us whether they ever got to that place of full faith or not. And yet, 
what God teaches us through the example of the Magi and how he used them speaks profoundly not just in that day, but it speaks to us even in our day about the truth of the gospel and the breadth and the width of the love of God and the lengths that he will go to to bring people and draw them to himself. May we never forget that in our lives. May we hold fast to that. If we've never come to that place of making a profession of faith, may that speak to you today by the spirit of God and draw you into that fullness of a living relationship. And may we never lose sight of that as we interact with friends and neighbors and family members and people all around the world that no one, no one is beyond the grasp and the reach of the grace and the transforming power of God which comes through Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, first of all, as we celebrate in this Christmas season the coming of God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world as our Savior. And God, thank you for all that you teach us through your revelation and creation and what you teach us through your word and the voice of your spirit. And God, thank you for the promise that whosoever will may come through Jesus Christ. And no matter what we have been through, no matter what our background, no matter what our baggage and our junk, that Jesus is more than able to save and deliver and transform and mold us into his image and forgive us and give us eternal life. Father, fill our hearts with gratefulness and Father, fill our hearts with zeal to be about proclaiming your gospel for the glory of your name. And this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.